listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Seven things today. I'm going I'm to deal with this. Seven supernatural blessings that come when you please the Lord. You know, I was listening to uh, Pastor Adeboye preach one time. Um, and he said, the master key in the kingdom of God is holiness. There is nothing else greater that God honors or has more power than holiness. Uh, prayer does not, faith does not, praise does not, giving does not. And the reason he said that is though all of those things are keys, though all of those things are keys, they are not the master key. He was talking about a master key that opens every door in the kingdom of God. And he was teaching on holiness being the master key. But he makes the point, all of those other keys, there are things that can happen that stop them from functioning, right? So uh, faith, there are things that can keep your faith from working. For example, by not walking in love, you know, holding grudges, things like that. Uh, So there are things that can keep your faith from working. There are things that'll keep your prayers from being answered. So although they are keys in the kingdom, they're not the master key. Holiness is the master key. There's nothing that can stop your holiness from working. And there are plenty of scriptures in the Bible uh, that deal with that. For example, Psalm 84, verse 11, the Bible says he will withhold no good thing. From who? From those that walk uprightly. And so we're going to go through some of that today. There's my dad. He's on from the underground bunker at Hill Cottage, deep in the hills of West Virginia. Hey, dad. Morning. Uh, So I'm going to give you seven of these things. So we're talking about pleasing the Lord. This truly is the key. This is the open door to the blessings of God, pleasing the Lord with your life. If God's pleased with you, and I want you to put this in the comments, it'll help you. If God is pleased with you, it does not matter who's displeased. That's that's an important thing to get, especially in 2022, 2021. If God is pleased with my life, it does not matter who's displeased. You know, one of the reasons that people don't want to go all out, they think people will think they're nuts when they live that kind of a Christian life. Oh, people are going to think I'm some kind of crazy, uh, you know, Christian, some wild, holy roller, some, you know, insane, you know, Bible thumping. And, And they'll actually make decisions about what they should do in the kingdom based upon what others who are outside of the kingdom think about their life. And it doesn't matter at all. As I've said many, many times, think about how foolish it is in this context I always say this because it gets people thinking, since when did the living care about the opinions of the dead? Since when did the living care about the opinions of the dead? So what do you mean by that? Can you imagine going and buying a new outfit at the store and putting it all on? It looks good. And you walk out into the middle of a graveyard and start looking at all the tombstones. What do you guys think of this? Do you think this outfit makes me look fat? Do you think this is my color? They don't have an opinion. They're dead. They're dead. Since when did the living care about the opinions of the dead? And the Bible says people who are not connected to Christ are dead in their trespasses and in their sins. They're not alive. They're dead. They're they're dead men walking, if you will. They're not alive unto Christ. And so their spirits are dead. Since when did the living care about the opinions of the dying and the dead? So the key being, Why would you ever make any modifications to your Christian life based upon the opinion of someone that's spiritually dead? That's a foolish thing to do. We're not living to please men. We're living to please God. And if God is pleased with your life, it does not matter who's displeased with your life. That's the key. And so uh, today I'm going to give you seven different biblical 
and supernatural blessings for people whose lives please the Lord. And the Bible talks about these things. I'm going to, um, I'm going to start with uh, the book of Romans chapter eight. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter eight, seven different blessings that come upon those who please the Lord with their lives. Romans eight and verse 28. Listen to what the Bible says. And we know that for those who love God, hmm, all things work together for good. Keep on going. For those who are called according to his purpose. Look at that. I'm so happy. Faith and Cass are on together. I'm so happy Cass is back home. Everybody welcome Cass back. She's back and better than ever. We love you, Cass. We love you, Faith. Romans 8, 28 says, to those that love God. Love you, Vicki. To those that love God. So let's define that real quick. Because one of the problems we have in our generation is what does it mean to love God? There's a lot of people that claim they love God. Oh, I love the Lord. Oh, brother, I'm going to tell you something. I'm sold out for God. Let's look at it. What does it mean to love God? Because as we look at this first supernatural blessing, we can see the prerequisite is those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay. What does it mean to love God? Well, we're now we're in, we're in the gospel of John chapter 14 and verse 21. And I want to uh, read what Jesus said. And I've harped on this in these broadcasts to get it into people's spirits that all of this stuff that's being preached to us, uh, this hyper grace message that's been uh, literally vomited all over the church around the world has nothing to do with scripture and everything to do with man's own uh, thinking. It's not a God-centered theology. It's a man-centered theology, though they would claim the opposite. No, it's not based on us. It's based on uh, God and what Jesus did. Yeah, but then what happens is it becomes man-centered in the way that instead of responding to what Jesus did, it actually gives license for those that are in the hyper-grace camp to say, you know what, my actions no longer matter. So because they believe their actions no longer matter and they can do what they want because nothing can separate them from the love of God, supposedly, then it's man-centered again because now I'm in control instead of the commands of Christ being in control. I don't have to do what he said. I just, I'm just thankful for his blood. I'm just thankful for his grace. It doesn't work that way. It's a destructive theology that is no theology. And so now we have to define what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? Well, Jesus defined it for us in John 14, 21. He said this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that means obeys them. He who has my commandments and obeys them. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Woo, hallelujah. Yeah, Yanil said, I once heard my pastor say my past, present and future sins are forgiven and it didn't settle well in my spirit. And that is true in theory. God is always willing to forgive sin. But uh, think of it in practicality. What does it mean in practicality, right? Number one, if your future sins are already forgiven, is there any need for repentance? What would you do? What, what is a Christian supposed to do if they commit a sin, right? Here is the practical question, because that sounds great, doesn't it? Your past, present, and future sins are all ready for you. Okay, so in practicality, how do I act that out as a Christian? If I sin, see, because you have to think about things logically, so if, if, the, if what they're saying is true, past, present, and future sins are already forgiven, that means one of two things, it means one of two things. Either number one, once you get saved, 
it is then impossible for a Christian to sin, right? Because Christian can't sin anymore because their, their sins are already forgiven. So there is no sin for the Christian. So if that's true, then the apostle Paul and Peter wasted a whole lot of parchment and John for that matter, whole lot of parchment writing to churches and Christians and commanding them to not fall back into sin. So that first thought can't be true that once a Christian uh, becomes a Christian, they can no longer sin. That's not true according to scripture because Paul wrote back many times to the churches and told them to live according, you know, worthy of their calling. Don't fall back into sin. Don't fall back into the old ways of living. Uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we know it's possible for Christians to sin. It's possible. So the second logical thing, if you believe that that's the case, that my past, my present, my future sins are already forgiven. Okay. If you believe that, and then you believe a Christian can sin because it has, that's the only logical thing you can believe. Then the second thing you have to believe then is that if a Christian does sin, there's no need to repent. There's no need to repent of sin. If you make a mistake, just keep on living. There's no need to repent because God knew you would commit those sins and he's the one that brought you into the kingdom. And so uh, if your past, present and future sins are already forgiven, he knows what sins you'll commit as a Christian. And so as a result, he's already forgiven them. So you don't even need to feel bad. You don't need to feel sorry. You don't need to repent because his blood has already forgiven your future sins. And we know that's not true either. And so what did those people have to do the hyper grace camp. What did they have to do in order to believe that Christians aren't required to do any repentance? They had to do hermeneutical gymnastics. They had to interpret the Bible in such a, a weird way that they have to take the John's first letter uh, to the churches uh, and say, well, you know, in John's letter, the first chapter of first John is not really written to Christians. The first chapter of first John is written to, uh, you know, Gnostics that crept into the church and it's written to those that are unsaved. And he doesn't really start talking to Christians until the second chapter. Well, the only problem with that thought process is that, uh, there were no chapters when John wrote his letters. <laughs> Chapters didn't come around until about the 12th century and verses didn't come around until about the 15th century. So you've got a problem there. How did the Gnostics know when to stop reading and how did the Christians know when to begin reading? Huh? So you look at this and they say, well, first John one nine, that's not written to Christians. Well, what does first John one nine say? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So uh, you say, well, that first chapter, that's not written to Christians. How would they know? There were no chapters. <laughs> there were no chapters. No, he sent the letter to the church and he talks to them throughout and this uh, to, to dissect it by chapter, when chapters didn't even exist until the 12th century, is obtuse. So to think that you're gonna go in there and start splitting these things up, to start doing these weird theological things to make your theology work, that's not how you, that's not how you recognize theology and doctrine. And so they've had to come up with all these weird things so that they can believe Christians don't need to repent and Christians don't need to sin, it's not about us, it's about him. And you've got scriptures throughout the Bible Go to Revelation, you know, if, 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 if people really thought that, and the reason I'm touching on this before we hit the other blessings of holiness is because there are plenty of people, plenty of people who don't think holiness matters. They don't think your personal actions matter and they matter very much as Jesus just, I read what he just said for uh, John 14, 21. It's the people who keep his commands that love him. You can say you love him all day. The proof is that you obey him. That's what Jesus is saying. The proof that you love me is that you obey me. Anyone can say they love him, but only the ones that obey him truly love him. Well, if that's the case, we look in the book of Revelation 
How, if their theology is truly correct, that, you know, God's not looking at our actions. He's looking at the blood of Jesus that covers us. He's looking at us through the covenant of his blood. If that's true, then why did Jesus return to the churches in the book of Revelation and speak to them? The seven churches of Asia Minor. Why would Jesus say the things that he said in the third chapter of Revelation where he talks to them? He says, I know, I know what? Your deeds or your actions. Look at this. I'll read it to you. Uh, Revelation chapter three. Listen to uh, verse one and two. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. That's what Jesus is saying. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Hmm. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wow. Let me read uh, verses seven and eight. To the church in Philadelphia, I jump to eight. I know your works. I've set before you an open door, which no, one, no one's able to shut. Look at verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So what's he doing? He's coming back to these churches. Look at, look at Revelation 2. To the church of Ephesus, right? I know your works. Huh. He said, I have something against you, verse four. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember where you've fallen and repent. Remember where you've fallen and repent. You see that? So it's not the apostles saying this. It's not, it's not some, it's Jesus. (laughs) This is Jesus. So to form an entire doctrine around the fact that, well, Christians don't need to repent. Jesus just spoke to Christians and said, repent. These are churches. (laughs) These are not like, these aren't uh, sinners. He's not speaking to people in the club. He's talking to churches. He's talking to Christians. What does he say? You know what Jesus does not say in Revelation? He doesn't say this. Well, you know, I know you've got some things going on, some issues, but I don't see those. I just see you through the filter of my shed blood. I just see your life through the filter of my shed blood. That's how my father sees you through the filter of my shit. No, he doesn't say that. You know what he says? Because, you know, anytime you talk like this and you get around a hyper grace person, you know what they'll start saying? Well, it sounds like works to me, brother. Sounds like you're talking works instead of grace to me. Yeah, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But once you get saved, there better be some works. (laughs) That's what James was talking about. Faith without works is dead being alone, right? So once you, we're not saved by works, but once you get saved, there better be some works. Liz likes the voice. <laughs> it sounds like works to me, brother. That's exactly, and they, that's, they harp on that. Sounds like you're preaching a workspace gospel. You got yourself a workspace gospel. It's grace, brother, it's great. And that's exactly how they, that's exactly how they think. Because they don't understand that you're not saved by works, but once you get saved, there better be some works. According to the scripture, there better. And Jesus is saying, I know your works. They're not the right works. They're the works I'm not expecting from you. And I want you to return. Now look at this. Jesus is speaking to this church in Ephesus in uh, 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 Revelation chapter 2. Look what he said to them. He said, you've abandoned the love you had at first. I know your works and you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You see that? Do the works you did at first. So what he's saying is, I'm I'm watching your works. They're not the right ones. They're the wrong ones. 
The works you're doing now are displeasing to me. I'm encouraging you go back to the original works that pleased me and do those. And look, look what he says. If you do not, now here's a warning from Jesus. Here is not just a rebuke, but a warning. He said, if you do not do that, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Whoo, unless you repent. So to, to try to teach people in the body of Christ that repentance is unnecessary for the Christian is absolute foolishness. And it's actually, if you want to know the truth about it, it is a demonic thought process. It's a demonic. Any theology that makes Christians comfortable with sin is demonic in nature. It's not a true theology. It's obviously a a false theology. It's what the Bible would call doctrines of devils. And you say, are you calling the hyper grace movement a doctrine of devils? I absolutely am. I absolutely am. The hyper grace movement is a doctrine of devils. There's no question about it. And I'm not just saying that flippantly. I've read the books. I've read their books. I don't just speak about this stuff without researching it. I've read their books. I've read the book that really started it all. I've read books, subsequent books. I've read books that contradict their books. I've gone through the scripture. You say, well, you just read books. You need to get into the Bible. Well, what do you think these authors are doing? They're actually uh, dividing scripture correctly to argue with this thought process. Probably I've recommended it on this channel more, more probably than any other book. If you're still confused about this subject, I encourage you to get uh, the book entitled Hyper Grace by Dr. Michael Brown. Hyper Grace by Dr. Michael, phenomenal book. It'll, it'll open your eyes. And he uses their own teaching from the word, their own preaching, and shows how it's uh, erroneous. It's a doctrine of devils. Anything that makes you comfortable with sin is a demonic thing. Because sin is a killer. It kills everything it touches. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, a, it's not just a false doctrine. It is a doctrine of devils. And, and what it does, and, and I can tell you something else. Having been, you know, I've traveled my entire life. But since I've been traveling personally as an evangelist, full time, for the last 12 years, I have only ever seen, now this is my, my hand to God, the honest truth. And I don't say this because I'm uh, biased or because whatever. I, I want you to know if I didn't, if I'd never studied it in the Bible for myself, if I'd never read any of the books, if I'd never gone through, uh, you know, the hermeneutical process, if I'd never done any of that, let me just go based on the evidence that I've seen. All of the evidence that I've seen of the fruit of what that message does in people's life, lives, it's destructive. I can't even begin to tell you how many pastors that I've had personal conversations with, and then I'll go back to their church a year later, a couple years later, and I'll say, where's so-and-so? I noticed they're not there. Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, they got caught up in the hyper grace message. I'll say, well, well doesn't that drive them closer to Jesus? Didn't it, uh, to, to understand his wonderful grace and love? No. They told me that now that they understand grace, that they don't need to attend church anymore. They don't need to tithe anymore. They don't need to do any, and they'll go through the whole thing that all of these people, and I'm not talking one, I'm not inflating this and I'm not talking about one. I'm talking about across the country, North, South, East, West, all of these reports that I've gotten from pastors and watched the fruit of people's lives when they adopt this hyper grace doctrine into their spirit, it actually, it, it does the opposite of what we're about to do. Why do you think I put in this dedication? I told you what I wrote in the very beginning, the dedication for the faithful. We will never grow cold. We'll never fall away. The name of the book, Lydia was hyper grace by Dr. Michael Brown. And I said, I said to them, uh, are you serious? Yeah. It just seems like once they got a hold of that hyper grace message, they just began to, uh, their dedication fell off. Their faithfulness fell off. Well, why do you think? 
because it plays into the carnal flesh nature. Oh yeah, that, what a nice doctrine that would be that I could be a Christian and go to heaven, but still do anything I want and not have to dedicate my life to Jesus, not have to go to church and not have to read the word and not have to live holy and not have to give and not have to tithe and not, and all these things. Oh, that feels nice to the flesh, but it is not the scripture. And one of the things that I've seen as the fruit of this doctrine is that it doesn't set people more on fire for God. It doesn't make people push in harder for God. It doesn't make people dedicate and become more faithful. It actually does the opposite. It pulls them from their dedication. It pulls them from their consecration. And as a result, they fall away. They're not in church anymore. They're not living for God anymore. That's the fruit of what that doctrine produces. Not to mention that on top of that, it's unscriptural and it's demonic. It's demonic. And uh, that would be a great book for them to read, Lydia, if they're, if they're willing to read it with a meek heart. And so you begin to realize that Jesus is not playing games when he shows up to these churches in Revelation and says to them, I know what your works are. I know how you're living. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time, don't continue on that path, but go back to what you used to do when you were pleasing me with your life. And then I'll bless you. But he said, if you continue on this path, I'll remove your lampstand from among the churches. That's a warning. I don't want to be removed. So, well, you can't be removed from, from the church of God. Well, if, if people believe that, let me give you one more before we finish on these blessings. And I feel like this is important because people aren't hearing this from the pulpit like they should be. People aren't hearing this from the pulpit and they need to be hearing it. Because it's one of the biggest slaps in the spiritual face that our generation has had to face. That's all it is. But look at John 15. This should open your eyes to this whole thing. The whole thing. Remember, the fruit of your life is what you do. I want you to, I want you to um, put that in the comments and put it in your notes. Write it this way. The fruit of my life is what I do. The fruit of your life is your actions. It's what you do. All right. Well, if you understand that, we're going to read a passage from the gospel of John together. That's going to help you to understand why this whole hyper grace thing, it could not even possibly be true. You know, because... <laughs> I was, I won't, I won't mention his name. I'm sure you all know who I'm talking about when I'm talking about, he would really be considered the father of the hyper grace movement. But, uh, after reading his books, I thought to myself, because it's funny, he, he, he sets himself up as though he's like this word of faith, charismatic Pentecostal believer with this twist of hyper grace. And it's like, I told my wife, I said, he's like a charismatic Baptist because after reading his books, I realized he doesn't believe that you can fall away. He doesn't believe that a Christian can fall away and become apostate. He doesn't believe that a Christian can backslide. He doesn't believe that a Christian could lose their salvation, not because God took it from them, but because they walked away from it. And I want to show you a passage that should really make you think, it should make you think deeply, okay? It's in John chapter 15, the gospel of John. And in fact, let me read the context to you because the context makes the sense. It's where we gain the sense of the passage. I'll start with verse one and we'll go all the way through uh, verse uh, seven and eight. John 15, one through eight. Listen to this now. I am, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, if you don't have your Bible open, this whole thing is Jesus, red letters. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, I want you to listen, I'm going to read this slowly because I want you to get it. I want you to get it. Every branch in me, pay close attention to the wording, play close. Pay very close attention to the wording. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, 
he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. That's big. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. Verse five, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. Now look at verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse eight, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I'm going to just hit you with this wording real quick because it's so mind-blowing that people don't get this. Notice what Jesus said here. Verse 2 is huge. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Okay, first of all, when we see that phraseology, in me, in him, in whom, all those things, that is talking about people connected to Christ in covenant. In me, there is no sinner, (laughs) catch this, and I want you to write this very plainly in the comment section, please get this truth. There is no sinner that is in Christ. Put that in the comments, please, please write that down. There is no sinner that is in Christ. What does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If any man be in Christ, let's read it. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Notice that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so Paul gives us the reality of it there. There's no sinner that's in Christ. Because Paul tells us later, if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creature. If anybody's in Christ, they're a new creature. There's no sinner in Christ. So who is John 15 talking about? Let me read it again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, you say, well, that's just figurative. No, he made sure that you would understand he's not being figurative. He's speaking about himself and you. Go down further. (laughs) Because he says it plainly. Look at verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He's like, just so you don't think I'm just making stuff up, I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch in me, in me, in me, in me. So the people that Jesus is referencing are people who are in covenant with him. If you're a branch that's in Christ, guess what? You're a new creature. You're a new creature. But look at what Jesus is teaching. If these branches choose not to bear fruit. Okay, so let's go back to this original thought. So that means then that the people who are connected to Christ can either choose to not produce fruit, Christian fruit, that's pleasing to God, or they can choose to produce fruit. I can either produce fruit that pleases God, or I can refuse to produce fruit and be a barren branch. It's not on God and it's not on Christ. It's on you and it's on me. I have to decide. I'm getting up today out of bed and I'm going to produce fruit that's pleasing to God. And notice this. Jesus says, Every branch that's in me that does not produce fruit, he takes it away. He'll remove it from the vine. Notice, he cut it 
off the vine, throws it into a pile to be what? Burned. That's Jesus talking. Jody said, what do you suggest to do with the people in your life that read it differently than you? I've been praying, I wasn't sure if there's, if there's something else. That read what differently? Read this passage differently? There's no way to read it differently. There is, that's why I'm breaking it down so carefully. There is no sinner who's in Christ. No sinner. Paul makes that clear. If any man be in Christ, any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So anybody that's in Christ is a new creature. Anybody that is in him is a Christian. The people Jesus are talking about, the people Jesus is talking about, they are in him already. Uh, remember what he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me ask you a question, Jody. This is, this is a great question to pose to those who quote unquote, read it differently than you. Can a sinner produce fruit that's pleasing to God without being connected to Christ? The answer is no. They're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. The things of God are foolishness unto them. And they do not understand those things. They're blinded to those things. So can a sinner that's apart from him, produce fruit that's pleasing to him. No. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So notice this. He's talking first about people. Talking first about people who are in him who just choose through their own will. I'm not going to produce fruit. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to produce fruit that's pleasing to God. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And if you, Jesus said, if they do that, the father's watching the branches. He's watching the branches. And if they refuse to produce fruit, he cuts them off, removes them from the vine, throws them into a pile to be burned in the fire. But for those who do produce fruit, he prunes them so that they'll produce even more fruit. So So get this in your spirit now. It's impossible for a sinner to produce, but Christians can choose to not produce and lose their connection with Christ. Notice that. Uh, Don asked the question, how could he take our sin away and we still have it at the same time? It makes no sense. Let me, let me explain that to you, Don, because this is the same thought process that the hyper grace people have. How could he take our sin away? And yet we still have it at the same time. It makes no sense. When you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, your spirit man is renewed, right? Your spirit man goes from being dead in trespasses and in sins to being, being made alive to Christ. You're a new person. He doesn't fix you up. He totally recreates you and your sins are forgiven. However, you still have two other parts of your being unaccounted for your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions and your fleshly body. You're a three part being. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a fleshly body. Paul, the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, that if he did not personally discipline his physical body to make it do what it should do, then he would be disqualified by God. So yes, of course, the Lord forgives you of your sin when you become a Christian. But that doesn't mean you can never sin again. That's the point I'm making. That just because you have been forgiven and that he removed your sins from you and that your spirit man is renewed and perfect, it doesn't mean your flesh has been glorified. It doesn't mean your carnal nature doesn't need to be kept in check. And it doesn't mean it's impossible for Christians to sin. And that's the reason that Jesus said, repent. And that's the reason that John said, repent. And that's, that's how we understand it is that though we are new creations that we're made perfect with God, he forgave our sins, but we still have works of righteousness to produce as James taught faith without works is dead. We still have to choose 
to live holy before God. I think one thing that will help people that are watching the broadcast and listening is to realize there's a difference between righteousness and holiness. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Righteousness is a position that God gives you when you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And I'll read that to you, by the way, from 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 5, where we read, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. But listen to, uh, listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, because this will help you to see this. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors of God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now look at verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin. So it's saying God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You see that? So because of what Jesus did, and by grace through faith, we place our faith in him and what he did, we become, we are set in a place of righteousness or right standing with God. That's a position. It's not an action. It's a position. Now, holiness, on the other hand, is not a position. Holiness is made up of actions of obedience to the written word of God. It's possible to be in a position of righteousness and take an action of unholiness. Think about that for a minute and let it blow your mind. It's possible to be in a position of righteousness and take an action of unholiness at the same time. Now, I don't believe that committing one sin separates you from God and salvation, but I do believe that living an ongoing sin that's unrepentant will cause you to be, unsepar- be separated from God as the scripture teaches. Righteousness is a position. Holiness is an action. Sandra said, well, how, scroll back up for me. <clears throat> she said, how do, how do you understand hypergrace pastors with thriving churches? Because you don't have to preach proper doctrine to have a thriving church. And also, what do you mean by thriving? Because the other thing we have to ask ourselves is, what do you do with all these seeker-sensitive churches? Some of them that start their services with secular music, Katy Perry songs. There was a church I saw started their service with ACDC songs. It's great entertainment. And you have people in there, and there's no doctrine being preached. There's no conviction of sin. There's no altar calls given. And the church is packed out. But what do you mean by thriving? If by thriving you mean there's a lot of people in the seats, well, then there's all kinds of churches that are filled with sinners, that there are no, uh, there are no people being converted. There's no conviction for sin. There's none of those things. But they got a lot of people in the seats. That doesn't mean it's thriving. It just means there's a lot of people attending. But is it pleasing to God? That's the question. Is what they're doing pleasing to God if there's no repentance from sin, nobody's being baptized in the Holy Spirit, nobody's being healed, nobody's being delivered, nobody is being turned into a a successful soul winner. What's going on? What's going on? So so is that pleasing to God? Is that thriving? Or is that a man-made thing that's just drawing a crowd? A crowd doesn't mean uh, God's hand is on something. Just be, let me say that again. Just because there's a crowd, it doesn't mean God's hands on something. Now I'm not, I'm also not saying that if you do things the right way, your church should be small. That's not true. Jesus did things the exact right way and had huge crowds. So did the apostles. Jody said, uh, would that be scroll back up, Maddie? I can't read it. You can put, make the, bring the comments down one size. They're a little too big. I've got 20, 20 vision. Would that be, would that be, for example, when someone is biblically right, but when someone else doesn't see it, they act crazy toward that understanding person. Um, not sure if that makes complete sense. I, you'd have to explain it a little bit better than that. I'm not sure exactly what you mean. 
But, but think about it. It doesn't mean your church should be small because you do things right. Jesus did them right. Apostles did them right. And they were, they were thriving. But what I'm saying is just because there's a big crowd, it doesn't mean God's hand is on it. Because you could go to a concert. There's a huge crowd there. God's hand's not on it. You could go to a, a sporting event. There's a huge crowd. God's hand's not on it. A crowd in and of itself does not equal the hand of God or the approval of God. You can do things that attract people in the natural realm. You can do things that attract people carnally and they'll come to it and they'll be a part of it. It doesn't mean God's hands on it, but yeah, Paul says it's not him that, that sins or the saved needs to be repentant for sin, which would be repentant, allowing the flesh to sin, taking authority and allowing sin. No, you have to understand that Paul is making the point that the spirit man is the real him. The spirit man is the real him. And he, why do you think in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body. It's almost like he's talking about his body as a separate entity, although it's the same person. But what he's saying is that the real me is my spirit man. And my spirit man does not want to sin, but I still have to deal with my flesh nature. And so holiness is actions. Righteousness is a position. Very important to understand that. And then of course, when you do understand it, you can look and see that God expects the people whom he's put in a position to take certain actions. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. So you go through the scripture and there's all kinds of passages commanding the believer to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Your actions do matter. Your actions do matter. Obviously, the Holy Spirit led me on that trail today. I wasn't expecting to get into all that, but it's something that needs to be taught and understood if we're going to please God and see these blessings that I'm teaching about today. And of course, the first one I listed, and I'm going to give you the other six here quickly before we pray, uh, but Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So understand it, the first blessing, if you're pleasing the Lord with your life, things begin to work together for your good according to what God's doing for you. You're called for his purpose. I mean, I could tell you story after story of how when I just obeyed the Lord and my life was pleasing to him, things just fell into place, fell into place. You've heard my testimonies. I mean, I could go on and on about how every time I made a decision to obey God, things fell into place, fell into place, fell into place, supernaturally, stuff that I could never have done. No, I could never have done it. But God did it because I was pleasing him with my life by obeying his voice and his word. And by doing that, he says, you know what? If you're going to continue to obey me like that, if you're going to continue to please me like that, watch, watch as I open the doors for you. Watch as I, yeah, I know Hannah. Some people only say all things work together for good. No, not for everyone. For those that love God, which means they obey him and are called according to his purpose. Obedience is what love is to God. And so that's the first blessing. All things are working together for your good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Liz, no, I wrote my first book while I was in the ministry. I've been in the ministry for 20 years. I didn't start writing books until, what, 2014? Something like that. I've been in the ministry since 2002. So... The second thing I want you to see, I thought this was powerful. The Bible says, second blessing. First one, all things work together for good. The second blessing in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7, the Bible says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Think of that. That when you please God with your actions, even your enemies have to be at peace with you. <laughs> That's, that to me makes me laugh because they can't even complete their plans against you. They have to just make peace with you. When, when a man's ways please the Lord, this is Proverbs 16 and verse seven. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies 
to be at peace with him. Thank you, Jesus. Number three, the third blessing. When your ways please the Lord, God will fight mightily on your behalf. Second Chronicles 16, nine, the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro across the whole earth. Who's he looking for? People whose hearts are turned or loyal toward him on whose behalf he will show himself strong and mighty. Thank you, Jesus. So the third blessing of pleasing the Lord with your life is that he will fight mightily on your behalf. He will show himself strong and mighty. Thank you, Lord. And he's going to do that for us in 2022. I'm telling you, get ready for obstacles to move out of your way. Get ready for divine possession to be yours. Get to do what you've never done to go where you've never gone, to see what you've never seen and to hold what you've never held, it's going to be a supernatural year. It's our year of divine possession. As God goes out ahead of us, shows himself strong and mighty on our behalf. Amen. Glory to God. Then number four, we go back to the verse I read to you earlier, John 14, 21. And Jesus said, those who have my commands and keep them, it is he who loves me. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. Now get this and manifest myself to him. So the fourth, fourth blessing of pleasing the Lord is that Jesus said he would manifest himself on our behalf. Hallelujah. He will manifest himself on our behalf. Kathy said, so can we by our actions screw that up? And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm guessing you're act, asking about forgiveness. Your, your past sins are forgiven as a Christian and you have to live holy and free from sin. If you do sin, you repent of sin and you keep moving forward. The John 14, 21 was the passage. So number one, all things work together for good. Number two, uh, our enemies will be at peace with us. Number three, God fights mightily on our behalf. Yeah, because if, you, if why is God, God's not showing himself strong and mighty on everybody's behalf, Kathy. On those or for those whose hearts are loyal to him, whose hearts are turned toward him. He doesn't fight on everybody's behalf, on those who are dedicated to him. Number four, we're at, we are in position for the manifestations of Christ. I'm expecting, and I know you are too, I'm expecting the greatest manifestations of God's presence in my life that I've ever seen in 2022. Jeanette, the scripture for number three was 2 Chronicles 16.9. 2 Chronicles 16.9. Let me hit them all again so you don't miss any. Number one, all things work together for your good, Romans 8, 28. Number two, your enemies will be at peace with you, Proverbs 16, 7. God will fight mightily on your behalf, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. And then Christ will manifest himself to us, John 14, 21. Yeah, I don't want to fight my own battles. That's right, Faustina. I don't want to uh, fight my own battles. I want God to fight my battles. He's a far better fighter than I am. Far more powerful. So I want him to fight my battles. Now, uh, five and six are from Psalm one. And I want you to go there with me. We're going to pray in just a moment. And I'm going to pray for all those that are watching need a miracle. Psalm one for five and six. Number five you will bear fruit in every season. For those that please the Lord, you will bear fruit in every season. The Bible says in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. The New Living says that bears fruit in every season. There should never be a season of your life where you can't or don't bear fruit. And if you're, according to song, if your ways please the Lord, hallelujah, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water and you will bear fruit in every season. Hallelujah. That's verse three. Psalm one, verse three. Also number six, your leaves will not wither. Your leaves will not wither. That's huge. Listen to me. You're not called to diminish. You're not called to be fruitful in one season and then dying and diminishing in the next season. No, that is not going to be the story of your life. His leaves do not wither. We're not called to wither away. We're called to bloom. We're called to produce fruit. What what did I read to you from John uh, 15? The Bible says when God sees you producing fruit, what's he going to do? He's going to prune you so that you'll produce even more fruit. You're not going to go from fruit production to lesser fruit production, to no fruit, to withering away. No, no. The Bible says you'll go from fruit production to greater fruit production, to even greater fruit production. And he gets all the glory. Hallelujah. He gets all the glory. That's going to be your story. Never diminish, never wither, never fade away. No, it's not weaker, weaker, weaker. It's stronger, stronger, stronger. We go from faith unto faith. We go from grace unto grace. We go from victory unto victory in Jesus' mighty name. So your leaves are not going to wither. The path of the just, hallelujah. Proverbs 4, 18, the path of the just is a shining light that shines more and more, brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Our path is supposed to continually get brighter in the mighty name of Jesus. And then finally, you'll prosper in all you do. That's the seventh blessing. You'll prosper in all you do. I'll, that's Psalm 1-3, but I'm going to give it to you also from Job 36-11. Look at this now. Hallelujah. Proverbs 36 and verse 11. If they listen and serve him, that is God. If they listen and serve him, they will complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. If they will obey and serve him, God, (laughs) we said that's, that's what's pleasing to God. Obedience is what's pleasing to God. They will spend their, or they will end this translation says they will complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures or pleasantness. That's what you should be expecting. I'm going to complete my, I'm completing my race in prosperity and pleasures, the pleasures of God, the pleasantness of God prosperity and pleasures. If I have to hear one more person, I don't think God's into that prosperity stuff. Well, then why, why did he put it here? If they would listen and serve God, I had a guy tell me on, on uh, YouTube, I think it was yesterday that, uh, you know, explain if you really think, if you really think God's into prosperity and material blessings, then explain Matthew 19, 21, the rich young ruler. I can easily explain that. He was supposed to be following Jesus, but he loved his possessions more than Jesus. It's the love of money. It's the root of all evil. That's what Jesus was pointing out. You've got an issue with the love of money. But if you think God's against material uh, blessing in response to obedience to his word, then you have a lot of explaining to do because you have to explain why he didn't just promise it to individuals. Why did he promise national prosperity and national health to, to Israel for their obedience? What do you think Deuteronomy 28 is all about? It's about him promising national wealth and health to his people, national, not to individuals, to the whole nation. 
God's not into material blessings. Oh, really? He said they'd be blessed coming in, going out. He'd open the rich treasury of his heavens. Their crops would be blessed. Their livestock would be blessed. Everything they put their hand to would be blessed. He'd fight their enemies for them, that none of these diseases would come upon them. Every sickness, every disease would have to leave their, their nation, leave their bodies. So if you think the God who does not change is somehow against physical health as a blessing for obedience and prosperity, financial prosperity as a blessing for obedience. You've got a lot of explaining to do on how under an old covenant that's worse than the covenant we have today through Jesus, he promised national prosperity and national health. People don't even think. They don't even think. I'm convinced many people, people say we only use 10% of our brains. I'm convinced there are people that are using less than 1% of their brain. I used to think that I couldn't personalize that because it is national. Yeah, but then you realize that we've become a part of spiritual Israel through the spirit of adoption that Paul taught about, and we are now God's people through Abraham, and that the blessing of Abraham has come upon the Gentiles through faith, and that now God will do more for us under a better covenant than he did for them under an old worse covenant. We have a better covenant established upon better promises, Hebrews chapter 8. And I'm telling you, we serve a good God. And we, we serve a God that said, if you'll please me, you'll spend your... What do you, what do you think Matthew 6.33 is all about? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. Read Matthew 6. You'll see the things he's talking about is natural things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Where are we going to sleep? He said, don't worry about those things. That's what sinners worry about. The heathen worry about that. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things that other people are dying to get will be added unto you. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, man. I'm ready to see what God has for 2022. I'm ready to fast and pray. I'm ready to press in. I'm ready to see the miracles of heaven take place. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. And I want you to, I'm going to pray for you now. I know people are, there's people that are needing a touch. They're struggling. They need healing. They need blessing. They need people uh, in their family to be saved. They need things, situations to turn around. And today's the day to receive it. Do not allow yourself to be tricked by the enemy and believe that you're not going to receive what God said is yours. You are going to receive what God said is yours. It's your blessing. It's your covenant. And the devil can't stop it. So let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' mighty name. We're so thankful for your wonderful anointing. We're so thankful for your presence and for your power. We ask you now in Jesus' name, touch every person who needs a miracle. Touch those who need a breakthrough today. I pray for those that are struggling. Someone wrote in, my anxiety, my depression today is overwhelming. I, I loose it now, peace and joy to their heart wherever they are. I take authority over depression, over anxiety. Command it to loose its grip and let them go in Jesus' mighty name. We thank you, Lord that the best days are ahead for us, not behind us. Lord, we speak healing to your people. I rebuke sickness and disease, commanded to lose its grip and let them go today. Let healing virtue flow through their body, make them whole. Lord, I ask you to let there be household salvation, convict the hearts of our unsaved loved ones, bring them into the kingdom. We thank you that we're going to have the greatest blessings and make the greatest impact in 2022 that we've ever made. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your power and your glory. You get all the glory. You get all the praise in Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody that believes it, shout amen. Give God some praise. Put some fire and hands up in the comments and thank God for what he's about to do. We're challenging you to sow a seed at the end of this broadcast today. You can sow it at miracleword.com. And um, maybe there's people you like to use uh, PayPal, you like to use Cash App, we get it. We have all those things available for you. But here's what I want to challenge you to do. This is what I want to challenge you to do. Take a step of faith today and make up your mind. I'm going to have financial overflow in my family, in my life. I'll not struggle. I'll not go paycheck to paycheck. I'll not stay in debt. I will not ever have to worry because God's going to bring me into the overflow. But it doesn't happen automatically. It happens because people take the step of faith to sow their seed. And so today, I want you to do what the Lord's encouraging you to do. Sow that seed by faith. Supernaturally, watch what God will do. 2022, 
It's going to be the best financial year we've ever had. I want you to declare it ahead of time, but don't just declare it. Put a seed in the ground that will shake your future up. Do something supernatural. Maybe you've never sown a thousand dollar seed. Sow one. Maybe you've never stepped above a thousand and done 2,500 or 5,000 or 10. Do it and watch what God will do. Carolyn and I are about to drop one in the ground on Friday night that's going to shake our 22 up. It's going to shake it up. It's the biggest first fruit seed we've ever sown, ever. It's going to shake our 22 up. It's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to put it in the ground. We do it because our church receives that offering on New Year's Eve every year, putting us in position for what God's going to do in the new year. For those of you that are sowing and standing with us in partnership, we're going to be sending you Pastor Mark Hankins' book, uh, Faith at O... Uh, do you have it, Maddie? Put it up on the... Yep. Yeah. Pastor Mark and Trina Hankins, Faith Opens the Door to the Supernatural. It's a powerful, powerful book. This is a powerful man of God. We love him. We love Miss Trina. And we appreciate him uh, allowing us to send you this as the gift for your sowing. For those that are sowing $1,000 or more, we're going to include with the book a signed copy of the Life Application Study Bible, Genuine Leather. And then for those that are sowing uh, uh, $5,000 or more, we're going to include something that I love. I put this together personally. It's called the uh, Elite Study Collection. And it has what I believe to be the best study materials uh, for people that are getting deep into Bible study, over 100,000 notes on scripture in this package, in a keepsake box, uh, all for you. We love you and appreciate you. It's our way of saying thank you very much for all of you that you're doing and standing with this ministry. You, you don't understand how much Carolyn and I love and appreciate you. And I appreciate you being with us on the broadcast every day. I love you. I'm going to be back again with you tomorrow and Friday. And um, Maddie, I think we should end today with a little power by IBC. You got, there it is. Oh, I love you guys. Have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you again very soon. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.